My name is Volker Kruger. Welcome to Von Ferndavi Legal News here on Waterberg Stereo. This program is sponsored by David and De Villiers Brokers here in Rustenburg. Two topics again today. Firstly, I'll be asking Martin Besidenote, our third-party claims expert, about what to do immediately after a motor vehicle accident. So please uh, listen uh, for that, for some valuable tips and uh, advice. And then uh, secondly, I'll be asking Johannes Mokotedi, our labor law expert, about a new case that dealt with uh, an employee who refused to come to work because uh, of the lockdown, even though his uh, employer specifically instructed him uh, to do so and also took all necessary precautions. You're welcome to send us your email with your questions and an email with your questions and uh, comments to info at vvd.co.za. You're listening to From Founder for Legal News here on Baderberg Stereo. I asked uh, Martin Besidenote, our third party claims department uh, expert, um, to uh, join us today and to answer a question that we obviously hope will never be relevant for any of our listeners. But uh, in case it is, I uh, would think that Martin should be in a position to give us some very valuable tips. The question is what to do immediately after you have been involved in a motor vehicle accident. So, uh, yeah, firstly, um, Martin, maybe we can deal with the statutory legal requirements that have to be met. And if I'm not mistaken, there are two acts that are relevant. And I can maybe ask you firstly to deal with the uh, National Road Traffic Act. So to what extent is the act relevant and what requirements, what obligations are stipulated in the act for in case one of the listeners might be in a motor vehicle accident? Uh, thank you, Volker. <clears throat> so the National Road Tra Traffic Accident or the National Road Traffic Act rather uh, has a few uh, statutory obligations uh, that a driver needs to comply with. And basically a driver of a vehicle on a public road uh, when that vehicle is involved in an accident uh, or contributes to an accident, then where any other person is killed or injured or suffers damages in respect of any property or involving an animal, that person shall immediately stop his or her vehicle. That is the first uh, requirement. Uh, that person uh, shall also ascertain the nature and extent of any injury sustained by any person in that accident. If a person is injured, then the driver must render assistance uh, to the injured person uh, as far as possible and which he or she is capable of rendering. Uh, the driver should also then ascertain the nature and the extent of the damages uh, sustained. Uh, it, that the driver will have to give the other person uh, his name or her name and address, the name and address of the owner of the vehicle, uh, and then also uh, furnish such information to a traffic officer that arrives at the accident scene. And 
If not, then at least within 24 hours after the accident, report the accident to the police station. He shall also, or she, shall also produce a driver's license to the police and furnish an ID number at the, to the police. Then, important, uh, the driver should not take any liquor or drug having a narcotic effect unless uh, examined by a medical practitioner uh, who deems that necessary. Those are the important uh, requirements. And then also another one that is very important is that the driver uh, shall not remove uh, the vehicle involved uh, that he or she was driving. Uh, if there's an injury or a person was killed, and the vehicles must be left in the position that they came to rest. Until such removal of those vehicles, of course, is authorized by a traffic officer. Uh, but there is one exception to that, and that is uh, if the accident uh, caused uh, a complete obstruction of the roadway of the public road, then that vehicle or the vehicles uh, may be removed, but the position must first be clearly marked on the surface of the road before those vehicles are removed. Um, then, let me see what the other one is. In a prosecution, in an event of a prosecution for a contravention of any of these provisions, uh, it shall be presumed, in the absence of evidence to the contrary, of course, that the accused driver was aware, was aware of the fact that an accident had occurred, and also that he or she did not report the accident or furnish the information as required by the subsections that I've read. Uh, the word animal is defined, uh, meaning a bovine animal, that is Latin, the word bovine is Latin for cow, but it's not only limited to cows, but also oxen, goats, sheep, buffalo, etc., uh, horse, mule, sheep, goat, pig, ostrich, and even a dog. So yeah, those are the statutory obligations on a driver in terms of the National Road Traffic Act. Yeah, I got a couple of questions on that and maybe a couple of examples that we could discuss. But before we do so, maybe we can first have a look at the uh, Road Accident Fund Act, which I think is the other important legislation that is relevant. So what obligations that, does that act um, provide for? In terms of uh, Section 22 of the RAF Act, uh, the driver uh, or owner, if it's not the same person, must provide the RAF with uh, uh, information regarding the accident and also a prescribed statement, and that is on a prescribed form uh, that the RAF will provide. So the best would be to uh, contact the RAF and uh, request such a form completed. However, if uh, that driver uh, intends to lodge a claim with the RAF, 
uh, I would not advise <clears throat> the completion of that form uh, because uh, the driver will in any event have to make a sworn statement uh, to the RAF of the circumstances of the accident and uh, <clears throat> his or her attorney will assist uh, with that affidavit. But say, for instance, the driver did not sustain any injuries in the accident, uh, but in the other car there are serious injuries or even uh, death, uh, deceased people, then uh, that driver uh, who will not have a claim against the RAF because he or she was not injured uh, will be required to complete such a form. But that form you only complete if the RAF contacts you to do so, or is there an obligation? Is there an obligation to, to from your side as driver who was involved in an accident to contact them? No, the the uh, provision says that uh, the the driver owner of a motor vehicle involved in that accident shall, if reasonably possible, with uh, in fourteen days after the accident furnish the fund on the prescribed form with particulars of the occurrence together with prescribed statements. So <clears throat> there's actually a statutory obligation to provide such information to the fund uh, within 14 days, but uh, I, I would advise, advise people to perhaps if they want to uh, do so within 14 days, but only provide information regarding the accident and not uh, and make a statement or say what really happened, because sometimes it's not possible to describe in detail how the accident occurred. So uh, I would uh, rather not uh, furnish a statement if uh, uh, the driver intends to institute a claim against the RAF. Yeah, and as you said, rather get advice no, from uh, your lawyer first before you make any statement specifically with regard to what happened during the accident. No? So that... Uh, uh, should be dealt with carefully. Yes, I would rather consult an attorney and asking about the uh, statutory requirement to complete such a form, and the attorney will then assist the client and advise him or her of, of, of uh, the rights in terms of this uh, act. Okay. All right, so anything else in terms of the Road Accident Fund Act before I maybe give you a couple of uh, questions, uh, practical examples, and put you on the spot? Uh, Volker, yes, just something of interest that I want to share with everyone. That is, uh, in terms of Section 21 of the RAF Act, uh, a claim uh, for injuries or death that does not lie against the driver or owner of a vehicle, even if uh, they were negligent or the cause of the accident. So a claim may only be instituted uh, against the RAF and not against the owner or the driver of that vehicle. Yeah, so that's where the RAF provides some sort of public uh, insurance no? uh, to all drivers uh, in South Africa as, as, a, as a general rule for such claims for death or injury. No? So uh, yeah. uh, it's basically forced insurance that uh, all um, drivers in South Africa as a rule have. So just like you also can take out insurance with your uh, insurance company, your uh, insurance broker, for um, your insurance for damage uh, to uh, motor vehicles as such, in terms of death and injury, there's this uh, public insurance, the form of the road accident fund, which uh, covers uh, those claims. Yes, that, that, that's right. 
Okay. So, yeah, if we can maybe have a look at a couple of sort of um, situations that could occur during a motor vehicle accident. Uh, you dealt with the exchange of names and contact details or addresses briefly. So does that mean that you have an obligation to exchange the names? And also, I guess that uh, another driver of a vehicle uh, has uh, uh, an obligation to share his name and contact details as well. So they basically cannot refuse in terms of the National Road a uh, Traffic Act to give those details? Uh, the best would be for me, Volko, just to read this, that particular subsection, at six, uh, section 61.1e uh, of the National Road Traffic Act. It says here, uh, shall, if required to do so by any person having reasonable grounds for so requiring, give his or her name and address, and of yeah. course that of the owner, if the driver is not the owner, uh, in the case of a motor vehicle, the registration or similar mark thereof. So, yeah, I, I would say for insurance purposes uh, and also for claims against the RAF, I don't think a person can refuse if that's a reasonable request. Yeah, so if there are two drivers involved in an accident and the one asks the other one to give his details and the other one cannot refuse, that would actually be uh, contrary to the National uh, Road Traffic Act. I would say so, yes. Yeah. And I guess it's also an offence, no? Does the act cater for a criminal offence? Um, if you fail to comply with any of the obligations that you mentioned now, I, I would think so. Yes, I'm sure there would be penalties and fines and it should be, a, yeah. will probably be a crime, yes. Yeah. All right. And then, yeah, in terms of, sorry, yeah. Uh, if, before we carry on, I just want to also... Uh, if not now, perhaps later, just refer to the right of recourse of the RAF against the driver owner under certain uh, circumstances. Okay. Um, then, uh, in terms of moving the vehicle, you mentioned now that there's actually an obligation if it's a, an, 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 an accident where there is, you know, death or serious injury, etc., not to move the vehicle, except if it's obviously creating another dangerous situation, like, for example, if it's in the way of, uh, you know, in the lane and people can't pass. Is that right? Is that sort of the rule? Uh, the particular subsection just stipulates clearly that uh, no person shall remove any vehicle involved in an accident in which another person is killed or injured from the position in which it came to rest until such removal, removal has been authorized by a traffic officer, except when such accident causes complete obstruction. So the word is complete obstruction of yeah. the roadway of a public road, in which event the vehicle involved may, without such authority, and after its position has been clearly marked on the surface of the roadway uh, by the person moving it, be removed sufficiently to allow. But I would rather wait for the... Um, a traffic officer to arrive uh, before I do so. Yeah, but let's say it takes an hour or longer or whatever, you wait for a long period of time and the police doesn't come um, and there's no death or injury, then you can, or it, it obstructs the, the, the uh, you know, the whole um, lane or whatever, then, then you can move the vehicle. Am I right? Yes, if, if there are no injuries, uh, because it uh, clearly states here in which another person is killed or injured, uh, in most instances one would not know whether 
the other person was injured or not. Uh, but yeah. I would advise uh, people just to have board chalk or chalk uh, in their cubbyhole so that they can easily mark uh, the vehicles uh, if there are no serious injuries and if the vehicles uh, do uh, obstruct uh, the road. Okay. And if you um, were involved in an accident, you drive away. That's obviously also not acceptable. That would also be an offense. No? You need to stay there. Um, and wait for the police and uh, exchange details, uh, etc. No, you can't just drive away. Yeah. No, that 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 would constitute a very serious offence. Uh, you have to stop uh, if you are involved uh, in a motor vehicle accident involving people and even animals or damage to property. For instance, you drove into a wall. Uh, you can't just leave. Uh, you must. You no. can't drive away. Okay, let's say you were not, uh, or your vehicle was not part of the accident, you were a witness, you were either a passenger or you were a driver of another car, that, uh, and you saw the accident happen, but you were not part of the accident as, as such, there was no damage to your vehicle, um, what then? Do you also need to stop? Uh, I can't find anything in this particular section. There might be another section concerning witnesses, but uh, I would say, uh, yes, there would be a, the ethical uh, obligation uh, to stop and provide your details uh, because you are a witness, uh, you're a very important person uh, who can testify later on or make statements or contribute to establishing or to determine what really happened. Yeah, so as a good citizen of the country, irrespective of what the legislation stipulates, I would also suggest that one uh, should, as a witness, also give your details to the people involved in the accident. Um, so, so if there is an accident between, let's say, an animal and a motor vehicle, then um, the same obligations apply. No? That's why the Act specifically makes reference to animals. That's, that's right, Volker. Uh, the, the, the driver should stop and try to determine to who that animal belongs to. Uh, yeah. Because sometimes a passenger or even a driver might have a claim. Uh, against the owner of, of that vehicle. I'm just thinking now, uh, if you collide with an animal in a, in a public road, a straight animal, and you sustain serious injuries, you might have a common law claim against the owner of that vehicle under certain conditions. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, maybe in, in summary, in terms of the steps to be taken, you need to leave the vehicle as it is, except if there is no injury or death to anyone. Um, be careful before you make that inference. I think, and as a general, as Martin has said, it's always safer to rather wait for the police. No? Do you phone the, the, the traffic police or the, the, the SAPS? I think uh, the traffic uh, police and the police, uh, normally people who uh, arrive at the scene will call the ambulance and the police, the metro police, traffic police, and then, uh, yeah, it's best to call them all if you if you can. Yeah, okay. Yeah, these days often, as uh, I guess we all know, the ambulances are quick to arrive and, uh, and, and so on. Um, and then there are a lot of rumors of ambulance chasers, as they are called, uh, looking for third-party claims on behalf of uh, lawyers, etc. What would your advice in that regard be? 
Yeah, Volker, I think that's unethical. I think uh, a person who's been injured uh, will, will have the choice to consult his or her own attorney uh, who specializes in uh, RAF claims. Uh, it's best to rather choose a qualified attorney uh, who can assist you and not to sign any documents at the accident scene. I would advise against that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then, then flowing from such an accident, there might obviously be civil claims. So uh, one would normally hope that uh, parties involved are insured and that the insurance would uh, cover whatever claims might be uh, instituted in respect of the damages to the vehicles. And then obviously, as you mentioned now, the other potential litigation and claims that might flow from a motor vehicle accident are the third-party claims for death and injury. So I guess gathering evidence for a potential court case might also be important after an accident? Definitely so, Falker. Uh, you know, I would advise people if they uh, are involved in an accident, in, if, if possible at all, uh, to take photos of the vehicles before they are moved, uh, because that that would be evidence uh, that can be used later on. And of course, also as I've alluded to earlier on, the uh, to to try and get witnesses, uh, get their details. But photos of the vehicles where they are very important, I would say. Okay. And then I guess also they often go and see an attorney as soon as possible, so that the attorney can maybe also advise you on potential evidence gathering that should be done. Eh? Uh, brake marks, for example, can be used to prove the speed with which vehicles were driving? Uh, definitely so, yeah. If uh, you can take photos uh, depicting uh, the brake marks on the road surface, also very important. Yes, you're right. Okay. And uh, get details of witnesses, get uh, details of the other drivers, uh, registration uh, the numbers uh, of the relevant vehicles, uh, etc. No? I would also take a photo of the license disc uh, or even the VIN number because you can, uh, most vehicles nowadays, you can easily compare the VIN number uh, on the license disc to the VIN number uh, on, the, on the engine because you can, you can see it. I would uh, take a photo of the VIN number and of the license disc. Okay. And then, yeah, the right of recourse, you mentioned earlier that there's something that you could maybe add in that respect. Yes, I just want to bring everyone's attention to that. Uh, the Road Accident Fund, although they don't enforce that uh, strictly, uh, very, very seldom, but uh, the Act does stipulate that uh, a driver who drives his vehicle while under the influence of intoxicating liquor or a drug or without a valid driver's license, uh, the RAF might have a right of recovery against that person if the fund is materially prejudiced. Uh, and then the same applies for the owner who allows a driver, knowing that the driver uh, was under the influence, or knowing that the driver using his vehicle uh, or her vehicle did not have a, a valid driver's license. So that is also an important section in the Act, although, as I say, in my experience, the RAF uh, don't enforce it, but yeah, one should just take note of that as well. 
over and above the criminal uh, offence uh, regarding those two uh, instances. Also, the RAF might re try to recover from you. Okay. Yeah, so I guess the best scenario in terms of insurance is that uh, when there's a matter of accident and you were to blame, then uh, if uh, you have insurance for damages to the vehicle, then your insurance will have to pay and uh, you won't have to cover that from your own pocket. And then, uh, as we mentioned now, except if one of those exceptions apply that uh, Martin mentioned now, you would automatically also have the uh, third-party insurance, which would uh, cover claims against you as a um, party who was at fault in respect of death or injury um, to uh, the other people involved in the accident. So obviously that insurance helps a lot because some of these uh, claims can be for huge amounts. No? If there's, for example, serious uh, injury amount uh, and then you're looking at millions of uh, rands that could be claimed, or if there's a death and uh, there's loss of uh, support for the dependent uh, children or spouses of that uh, deceased person, then you're also looking at huge claims. Am I right? That's uh, right, Volker. If we look at the injury claims, uh, a person can claim if he was not at fault uh, for past hospital and medical costs, uh, despite the fact that the, uh, the medical aid might have paid that. Uh, most medical aids would in any event uh, require uh, its member to claim those expenses uh, and refund it to the medical aid once the third-party claim has become finalized. Uh, then there's uh, future medical costs for which the RAF uh, will provide an undertaking uh, to cover those costs in future. Uh, they will not uh, settle future medical costs in cash. Uh, past loss of income that you can prove, uh, future loss of income uh, that can be proven. Uh, for instance, uh, a third party may have to retire earlier due to the injuries, and that will be determined uh, by way of expert reports obtained by the attorney dealing with the claim, uh, which, of course, are also very expensive. Uh, you will look at, uh, for instance, if it was orthopedic injuries, orthopedic surgeon, occupational therapist, uh, even uh, industrial psychologist, and then an actuary. So there's a lot of experts involved sometimes with serious injury claims and as i've said before these uh, third party claims a very specialized uh, field of the law you need to consult with a, uh, a third party uh, attorney who specializes in raf claims uh, when you are injured in an accident also to determine whether or not you you will have a claim or you might have a claim there could also be an apportionment of your damages because you were contributory negligent in the accident. If it is uh, to be found that you were 50% to blame, your damages will be reduced by 50%. So in the case of uh, deceased people, uh, I would say loss of support claims. It is true that the RAF Act uh, caps uh, the income of the breadwinner, uh, even for a claim for um, a past and future loss of income, there's also a cap on that, but still, uh, claims could be um, substantial, uh, depending on the seriousness of the injuries.
Maybe just a final question, uh, Martin, that I often get from people as well is, is the road accident fund uh, insolvent? And my answer is always, um, technically, they are in insolvent. They've got serious financial problems because of all the massive claims that they have to pay out. But they sort of carry on because they keep on getting um, uh, funded by the government. Now, there's uh, actually, for example, on uh, petrol that you buy, there's a tax that goes to the government for the third-party fund. So um, there will always be money flowing to the fund. So that's certainly not a reason to consider not instituting a third-party claim. It might uh, take longer for you to get your money, but at the end of the day, in terms of the legislation, uh, you are entitled to be compensated. Am I right? Yes, definitely. Uh, the road accident fund will be insolvent if they must uh, pay all their claims at once, uh, which is not the case. So they they do receive money uh, every month. Uh, and uh, as you've pointed out, it's a fuel levy that is applicable. And uh, every year the fuel levy is increased. So, yes, the fund is technically insolvent, but uh, they still pay out claims, although uh, it might take eight months or 12 months. Uh, but, yes, eventually they do pay those claims. Okay. Thank you, uh, Martin. I think those are a couple of uh, valuable tips which might help our listeners uh, to know what to do uh, when they are uh, involved in a motor vehicle accident. Uh, hopefully that uh, obviously never happens. Thank you. Only a pleasure. Thank you, Volker. My name is Volker Kruger, and uh, you're listening to From Founder of Illegal News. I um, asked uh, Johannes Mukutedi to talk to us about a new case that uh, deals with an uh, South African employee who refused to come into work during the lockdown or during a lockdown uh, period uh, related to the COVID-19. So, um, what happened in this case, uh, Johannes? Uh, briefly, the facts are as follows. Mr. Bota, a sales executive at TVR Distribution, was at home and it was during uh, this level five lockdown. Now, uh, uh, his employer uh, gave him instructions to report for work uh, during the time. Now, he refused and presented list of excuses, amongst others, that there was no uh, 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 PPE clothes, they, there's no certificate issued to him, and, and But at the end of the day, he refused to come to work. Now, the employer decided to charge on him, and ultimately, he was dismissed. He took the matter up to the CCMA, and the CCMA confirmed the dismissal. But the CCMA make, made a finding that, to an extent, the, the dismissal was, was procedurally unfair and gave him a one-month uh, uh, compensation. Now, the facts to be learned from this case is that, number one, it was during lockdown. The employee refused to come to work. And the question arises, was the employee justifiable in circumstances or not? Now, uh, TV, uh, TVR distribution during the time of lockdown made an application to the 
the CIPC for them to be declared an essential service provider, which was provided for, and as uh, a certificate was issued to them that could that they could continue to work during the lockdown. Now, to an extent, uh, uh, TVR complied. Now, TVR issued a number of uh, certificates uh, to their employees so that they can come to work. They, amongst others, also issued a number of uh, PPE clothes uh, for them to be in compliance with this uh, COVID-19 uh, COVID situation. But uh, Mr. Buota uh, indicated and came up with excuses that he was not going to come back to work. Now, remember uh, uh, that an employer can issue a reasonable fair instructions to the employee. And in circumstance, the employee is duty bound to comply with the instructions by the employer. Now, in our situation, Mr. Boota refused to comply with the instruction. Now, the question arises: was the instruction reasonable and fair in circumstance? Now, uh, it was established during the case that Mr. Boota had history of being, uh, of not complying, of insubordination, of insolence and not complying with the employer's instructions. Now, further on, it was established during uh, the hearing that uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Buota, uh, uh, it was not for the first time and the employer find it difficult, in fact, to relate uh, instructions for him and the instructions to be ultimately uh, 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 executed. Now, the in circumstance, the employer deemed it fit to uh, dismiss him. This was confirmed in the, CC, in the CCMA. Now, it was also established during the hearing that the chairperson of the hearing uh, had some run-ins with Mr. Boda. Therefore, they had a tiff before. And uh, if my memory serves me well, he was also one of the uh, chairpersons in the previous cases where Mr. Boda was involved. And um, the, the, the commissioner, the CCMA, gave Mr. Boda the benefit of doubt to say that to an extent, the employer did not uh, 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 procedurally execute or procedurally was fair to Mr. Boda, gave him compensation. But primarily of importance, the, the dismissal of Mr. Boda was confirmed. Now, it is of important that employees should at all times comply with instructions from the employers. The employers are not in any way uh, uh, limited or are not in any way excluded from working during uh, any of the uh, COVID-19 regulations, as long as they comply with the provisions and the conditions. And they can issue any instructions which are reasonable. And if the employee does not comply, the employee can be dismissed. All right. Uh, I guess uh, some good news for employers. Um, Confirming uh, what you just uh, explained. Uh, so, yeah, no, thank you, uh, Johannes. Anything that you want to add? Uh, I guess the lesson for employers and employees is, as you just uh, mentioned at the end of your, your explanation, uh, that uh, uh, the employer um, can still give instructions, doesn't matter what the circumstances are, to his employee, and uh, the employee has to perform in terms of those instructions. I mean, that's an intrinsic part of any contract of employment. Uh, am I right? You are correct. You are very, very, very correct. But importantly so, the employer should also make sure that they comply with the regulations applicable at the time. And if they are, they can do whatever it is reasonable 
and fair in order to protect and promote their business as long as it is within the bounds of the law. Okay. All right. Thank, thank you. you. That's all we have uh, time for today. Remember, our email address is info at vvd.co.za. Thanks for uh, listening. Uh, make sure that you tune in again next week, Wednesday, between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock, and then also on Friday evenings.